Well, good morning again. I am uh, so thankful that you're all here, that you uh, are tuning in from at home if you're watching. I'm thankful for all of the teams of people that it takes to do something like this. And I was thinking this morning, why do we torture ourselves? We have a perfectly great facility, uh, but really it's fun. I mean, I have fun with it. I hope you have fun with it. It's a little bit different, and it draws attention to something that the Lord is doing, which is kicking off all of the fall things here at Calvary. So I hope it kind of triggers your brain into thinking, summer's over, my camping on the weekends is probably gone, and now I'm back into volunteering for Awana and getting involved in Bible studies and starting life groups. And so we're having training right after lunch today and even during lunch for any of you that are volunteers or interested in volunteering. We're going to have that training. Uh, we ask you to stay for that if, uh, if that includes you as a volunteer. But for today, uh, I'm asking that you try to help me not be distracted. I'm like, why am I preaching outside? I get distracted easily. So I'm going to see a bird and probably get distracted. And I know many of you get distracted easily. So we're going to try to hone in on 2 Samuel. We are actually going to go through chapters 2 through 6, but I'm going to fly through the first three, maybe four chapters. And we're going to focus deeply on number six, chapter 6. But where we are in this process of studying First and Second Samuel is that David has just finished mourning the death of his enemy Saul. And Saul was chasing David for many years. But upon his death, David did something that taught us the reality of trusting God instead of our human reactions. You see, David could have celebrated Saul's death, but he mourned. And he showed us what it looks like to have a heart of love for Saul someone who encouraged us that even in bitterness, we can trust that God is bigger than any bitterness or human emotion that we can give that to the Lord, even trusting to mourn our enemies. But now we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to see that David is anointed the king of Judah, now Saul has died, leaving a position that's open. And David is the next promised king. And so what we see is that after more than a decade, even longer of waiting, it seems to finally be time for David. However, if you read ahead and you looked at chapter 2, you would see that David in verse 4 of chapter 2 is only appointed as king over Judah. You see, the boundaries of Israel from a political sense have changed many, many times over the years. But at this particular time, the land was split into two territories, Judah, the southern part, and Israel, the northern part. And so here David is after the death of Saul, and he's waiting to be appointed the king. And they come to him and say, you get part of it. You only get Judah. Israel is someone else's right now. Judah is what you get in this moment. Is anyone here impatient on behalf of David? I mean, really, here he has been waiting. He's been tortured. He's been chased. He's had all of this time to think about what someday is going to be his, and then it's incomplete. And I'm reading this going, man, I am really impatient. He's waited long enough, and now he only gets partial. You see, David's internal voice in this moment could have easily rejected this idea and said, no, I know what's rightfully mine. God said, I'm going to be the king and you're only giving me part. But David didn't respond that, that way. 
And there's a little bit of a lesson tucked in here because David wrote a psalm, Psalm 27. And if you were to look over at Psalm 27, verse 4, it actually is his words and it says this, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So David's words in Psalm 27 is what he is fleshing out in this moment. And he doesn't reject this idea of only getting Judah. He waits for the Lord and he is excited to see what the Lord is going to do. If you were to continue reading chapters 2, 3, and 4, you're going to find an introduction to new people in our story. You're going to see betrayal. You're going to see multiple murders. You're going to see a woman being taken away from her husband because she was promised to David previously. So let's see a summary of these people. On Saul's side, if you were to read, you're going to learn about a guy named Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. You're going to hear about a guy named Ishbosheth. Abner had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and made him king over Israel. So now you have David over Judah, you have Ishbosheth over Israel. On David's side of the story, you, remind, you remember who David is. He's the appointed king by God. He's anointed, he's appointed, and he's the one that God wants for all of his people. You're going to hear someone named Mishal. Mishal is the daughter of Saul who was once in love with David. And she saved David's life at one point when her father Saul tried to kill him. That's in 1 Samuel 19. But somewhere in the conflict between Saul and David... Mishal was given to another man. So tuck that in the back of your head for now. You also are going to learn about someone named Joab. Joab is the chief of the men who are committed to David and keeping his kingship safe. Okay, there's a quick overview. You can follow along in the Church Center app if you're struggling to uh, stay focused on this. So over the rest of chapter 2 and then all the way through chapter 4, we're going to see a conflict between Judah and Israel. You would read about battles and David's army and Ishbosheth's army having conflict. David loses a small amount of men. Ishbosheth loses a larger amount of men. But David during this time continues to grow stronger and he gains support. While Abner, you remember Abner is the commander of Saul's army. Abner supported Ishbosheth, but he finds himself being blamed for something that didn't actually happen. And so this is a turning point because now all of a sudden Abner's loyalties change. And over this course of time, he decides that he is going to turn Judah over to David. So now you recognize that David waited for the Lord. David didn't do anything that said, I'm going to grab hold of Israel myself. He allowed God to work. And now all of a sudden Abner, an enemy of David, loyal to Saul, says something's different. I'm going to turn things over to you, David. This is the Lord working because David, remember, in Psalm 27 says, wait on the Lord. What a lesson for us as we find ourselves in emotion in times of desperation and we go, I must have to do something. And so many times God is saying, just wait. Trust that I'm working. And we see right here that God is working. In verse three, or chapter three, verse 27, this is what it says. I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to the Lord, to my Lord, the King, talking about David. And I'm going to make a covenant with you that you will reign over all of your heart's desires. So what we see in this moment 
is that Joab, you remember Joab is the man who's committed to keeping David safe. Joab decides that Abner is tricking everybody. And so in this moment of thinking that he's tricking everybody, we see that he's bitter. He's angry. He doesn't trust. And so what happens is that Joab murders Abner. If you are ever thinking that scripture is boring to read, read chapters two through six of 2 Samuel as a start. There is murder. There's some gory details that we're not going to get into today. There's some strange things that were used to secure a marriage, if you're interested. You can read all of those things, but what we see is that Joab murders Abner. Abner was mourned by David. And so once again, we see a great lesson of David, that even though Abner was on the side of Saul, David mourns his death. Are you starting to see why David was called a man after God's own heart? Where he understands the sanctity of life, even if it's the life of someone who was against you, and he mourns for Abner. So what we end up seeing here is that after David's mourning, we're actually in chapter four now, Ishbosheth is taking a nap and two men approach him. They come into his house, chapter four, verses five through six. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. If you're ever looking for permission to take a nap, there it is. Okay, you can take a nap in the middle of the day. However, I'll warn you because what's next, you might not want. They came into the midst of the house as he was napping as if they were going to get some wheat and they stabbed him in the stomach. So now all of a sudden we have our second murder of the story. Abner was murdered by Joab. Ishbosheth has two people that come into his house while he's napping. They gut him and then they continue to describe, Scripture does, that they take his head and they escape and they bring his head to David. The reason they bring his head to David is because, remember, Ishbosheth was the king over Israel. And so they thought they could gain favor in David's eyes if they bring the king's head and say, hey, look it, we killed him, now everything is yours. They took matters into their own hands, didn't they? David wasn't. David didn't sanction this. This was man acting based on their own impatience, seeking their own favor. David was not the one doing this. It was these men. He rejects this act of murder and he puts these men to death for their actions saying, you didn't wait for the Lord to do this. That wasn't the righteous thing to do. And so what we find now is after two murders, now the pathway to full kingship is opened for David. And in chapter five, we see a historical event that David is marked and anointed as the king over all of Israel and all of Judah. This is a momentous occasion because this is exactly what God promised and God fulfilled this whole path. David marches to the city of Jerusalem and he captures it to, be, to make it both the spiritual and the political capital. So what this event teaches us is that God's promises and his faithfulness is right there with us. He is the one who's going to make all of this happen. And so David takes Jerusalem or heads towards Jerusalem and says, I am taking this as the capital. And not only does he take Jerusalem as the capital, but he finally defeats those pesky Philistines that we've been learning about for all of 1 Samuel. Finally, he defeats them. In chapter 5, verse 25, it says, David did as the Lord commanded him 
and he struck down the Philistines. So now, there is a very quick summary all the way through chapter 5 of what happened. But I want to zoom in on chapter 6. I'm going to try my best to keep an eye on the time. But chapter 6, we find a lot of things that are a little bit confusing. We find a little bit of great lessons here. And really, the focus of today in chapter 6 is worship. David, what we see in chapter 6 is that he worships the ultimate king. And in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, we see that the ultimate king sends this group of people a reminder. Jerusalem is the capital, and David says, I need to bring the Ark of the Covenant. You remember in 1 Samuel, our study, we learned what the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, and there were a lot of rules to follow with how to handle it, because God's presence is not to be taken lightly. So we're going to find that out as we discover things about worship today. And so what we see is that David tries to transport the ark, but he uses an ox cart. And there's a guy named Uzzah. Uzzah is one of the men who's accompanying the ark, and he reaches out to steady the ark when the ox stumble. And when he reaches out and he touches the ox or the, the ark of the covenant, he's struck dead. What? Wait a minute. This is church. We're talking about murder. We're talking about beheading. We're talking about some guy just touching something and he's struck dead? How does that make any sense? Let's slow down and let's just think of it clearly. It does seem harsh to us, doesn't it? But you have to remember a bunch of different lessons here. One, mankind typically thinks very highly of themselves. We look at ourselves and we go, yeah, I am everything that I need. We don't naturally feel that way about God. We also see that God instructs us and he allows us to learn through real life events. So when you think of this real life event where a man was struck down, we need to think, what is God trying to teach us? Another thing is that mankind needs lots of reminders, we need reminders of God's authority, his power, his might, his holiness. We need to be reminded that we have to be reverent to him in all things and never flippant about anything. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And so you can't take that lightly. So remember that. We also have to know that there was a proper way that God instructed on how to handle this Ark. It may not have been convenient, but God gave very specific instructions. He didn't hide those instructions. He didn't confuse those instructions. He said, don't touch the ark. You're supposed to use poles that go through it and carry it on the shoulders of very specific men, the Levites. They had to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. God was very clear on this, and Uzzah was not part of that. And the cart was never supposed to be used to transport the ark. So we see that all of these things were disobeyed. If you're looking for instructions on how to handle the ark of the covenant, it's in Exodus chapter 25. It was spelled out for them and it was not handled correctly. And so in the moment that he touched the ark, he disobeyed. The moment that they put it on a cart and didn't use the proper people because God sets the standard, there was discipline and punishment and mankind needed to be reminded that the presence of God is not to be taken lightly. J.D. Greer says this about mankind, I worship or we like to worship God in our own way. 
We like to think it doesn't matter how one worships God or what or how you do it, as long as it's sincere. The danger with this is Uzzah was sincere in his action. I don't want the ark to hit the ground. But in his sincerity, he ignored what God had set as the standard, which is why the standard doesn't start with our sincerity. It starts with God's authority. And so Uzzah reached out and touched the ark and was struck dead. He ignored and neglected the standard and instruction of God. And you might be sitting here going, that's a stretch. That, that's, that's not right for God to have done that. It is right because God is righteous. He is always right and his standard teaches us exactly what we're supposed to know. His presence cannot be taken lightly. And I don't think anyone there after that moment was going to look at it and say, wow, that's a light situation. It was a stark contrast to what was happening around there. And so what we see is that Uzzah struck dead and David is initially filled with fear and anger. We don't know exactly why he's angry, but we can speculate that in that moment, there's a lot of emotion going on. And we see that he wrestled. If, if you're looking in your scriptures, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, it says, David was very angry, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And then in verse 10, it says, so David was not willing to take the ark into the city of David, Jerusalem. He stopped everything. He captured Jerusalem. He's marching with this ark. Uzzah is struck dead. And he says, I can't do this. And he waits for three months. He had to wrestle with his anger, with his frustration, with trying to figure out what was happening in this moment for three months. But finally, what we see is that he begins to think clearly. But here's a little bit of a lesson here. Worship is not whatever you want it to be. Uzzah thought that it was right to stop the ark from falling, but it went against God's instruction and his authority. And so you may be operating on feeling when it comes to worship, but the starting point is not our feelings. It's God. It's his authority. It's his standards. And so what we're going to see here in the following verses is worship lessons from David. There's going to be three points that I want you to remember for today. Starting in verse 12, we see that David has reflected on everything that's just happened. We just went through a whirlwind of multiple murders, like I said. He's anointed the king over Israel and Judah. And now all of a sudden, someone in his posse is struck dead for touching a box. But it wasn't a box. It represented the presence of the Lord. And there was instruction on how to teach us how to handle God's presence. And so now David has these moments of clarity. And he realizes that it was mankind who was not following God's specific instructions. He sees that the problem was not with God. The problem was with man and their heart and their irreverence to God's presence. And so we see that he was once unwilling to take the ark to Jerusalem. But now he's in his right mind and he's recognizing that God didn't suddenly change, that God is still worthy of praise and worship. And so he gathers people and he takes the ark to Jerusalem. And this is where we find our first lesson on worship for today. We see in verses 12 and 13 that we are supposed to worship with reverence. See, on the first trip with the ark, Uzzah was struck dead. He lacked reverence for God. Whoever is responsible for transporting the Ark of the Covenant 
needs to be obedient and careful with the presence of God. That's how we're supposed to worship. David sees this, that we are supposed to worship with reverence. And look at verse 13 of chapter 6. It says, When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he stopped and he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So David drums up all this excitement. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Everybody, get the proper assembly. He finds Levites to carry the ark. He slides the poles in the side of the ark and hoists it up on the shoulders like they're supposed to according to God's standards. And everyone's excited to march to Jerusalem and they take six steps. I don't think I can take six here, but six steps. And all of a sudden he goes, wait, Let's stop, set it down, let's sacrifice an animal. Make that too. Can you imagine what people are thinking? But that's not the point, is it? Do you know how many people in a massive crowd that you just got excited to march to Jerusalem and now you stopped them? All of the murmurings that are going to happen. What is this David thinking? We should get going. The sun is setting. We're going to run out of daylight. What are you thinking that you should stop? But David doesn't care. Because his heart is reverent before God. And he's saying, my act of worship before God is the only thing that matters right now. And it's a heart that is reverent to almighty God. And this is the very presence of the Lord that I am supposed to respect and honor and worship. And I don't worship the murmurings of mankind. I worship God himself. And we see that we are to worship with reverence. And so for you, where is your heart when you worship? Your worship is between you and God, not you and the person next to you who may be raising their hand or the children that may be dancing up front. We have so many thoughts in that crowd of people that say, this is a problem. That person's doing that. I saw them yesterday and I didn't like what they were doing and it's affecting my worship right now. And suddenly we have lost the reverence of almighty God. And we find ourselves in the position of Uzzah where we reach out and we want to talk and touch about the person doing their thing and we lack the very reverence that God has called us to as we gather here today. We are worshiping Almighty God. And so the challenge is to evaluate your own heart. Are you reverent before God in your worship in your treatment of his presence in your life. Because as a believer of Jesus Christ, you are filled with the very presence of God through his spirit. Are you reverent in worship? We also see, if you continue reading in those same verses, verses 12 through 15 now, we see point number two. So number one, worship with reverence. Number two, worship with joy. In conjunction with the sacrifice and the journey of the ark, we see that worship is to be done joyfully. The expression of joy can take on many forms. So if all of a sudden you find yourself thinking, oh great, pastor's going to expect me to raise my hands during the final song. Pastor's going to expect me to tap my foot. No, the expression of joy takes on many different forms. David gives us a very specific one. I believe that the specific expression of joy that David shows us in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is different than anyone else's here today. If you look at these verses, it says he was rejoicing. He danced with all his might, not some of his might. Do you know what a grown man looks like when he dances with all of his might? 
frightening. Okay? You want me to show you? No. I'll just gritty. How's that? Yeah. He was dancing with all of his might. He was shouting with the sound of the horn. He's shouting. There's horns being played. He's dancing uncontrollably. He is so excited that he's reverent with the presence of God. He's saying, I respect God and I can't help but be filled with joy. And I express that in my worship. It was genuine. It was not emotionalism. He didn't wait to hear the sound of the horn, the beat of the drum, get the experience of the people, and then suddenly he was filled with joy. He was filled with joy because he was reverent before Almighty God. That was the starting point. And the reason I say that it's going to look different than anyone else is because he did it wearing a linen ephod. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's your underwear. David stripped down to his underwear and danced. Calm down. I know I just said underwear in church, but we're outside, so it's different. An ephod was a short inner garment, and you're like, you're just fancying up the word underwear. It was an inner garment that was associated with priestly service. Now, the reason I believe it wasn't inappropriate is because scripture doesn't tell us it was inappropriate for him to do this. He stripped himself of any adornment that the world would be looking for. There may have been other priests there, and it was common for people and priests to adorn themselves with all of these earthly things because I want you to know that I am this wonderful person with dignity and honor. And David said, no, I bring before God humility. And he stripped down to something that was not inappropriate It was a humble recognition of where he stood before God because he wasn't bringing glory to himself. He was giving all of the attention and the glory to God. And so he danced with all of his might and this joy that he experienced was produced, again, not from emotionalism, not from environment, but from the heart of reverence that he started with. That's why step number one was, are you reverent before God? And question number two is, Are you filled with joy as you worship? Are you so focused on Almighty God that you are filled with passion and with joy that you're going to worship Him him genuinely and joyfully? Your expression may be different than David's. In fact, I hope it is. But genuine worship of God always produces joy. So pursue joy in worship and worship joyfully. And now the third one. We find ourselves in verse 16. The third part of worship I want you to remember today is that you worship with freedom. You worship with freedom. When we are reverent before God, when we are filled with joy and we're worshiping our God genuinely, we are going to worship with freedom. And the reason it's number three is because if freedom was our starting point, then it leaves the standard of worship up to us and our experience. It allows us to define what we get to do. But within the reverent heart of God, as we reflect on who he is and we are filled with his presence and we can't help but show it joyfully, then we are free from all of the other critics. We are free from all of the other expectations as long as we started with reverence because then everything you do within your freedom will not be dishonorable to God. You can't just do whatever you feel like doing, but when your heart is focused and filled with the presence of God, then you are free to worship him. 
Don't let the person next to you tell you to keep your hand down. Raise your hand into the, uh, unto the Lord. If you're welling up with tears because you recognize that you were once a lost sinner condemned to hell, but Jesus Christ has saved you, then let the tears flow from you. You are free to do that because you are reverent and filled with joy. And what we see from David in verses 16 through 23 is David has a critic. Anyone ever had a critic before? Yep. David finds out he has a critic, and we go back to who I introduced to you before, Michal, Saul's daughter. The promised wife to David, yet another wife to David. She's watching from a window in the city as they approach with the ark, and he's dancing, and he's excited, and he's wearing the linen ephod, and he's, with all of his might, he is worshiping God, and here she is. She says in verse 16 that she saw this, and she despised him in her heart. She's offended by his genuine worship of God. The very thing that should be attractive about David. The very thing that we should look to each other as being attractive. I have the very great benefit of having a perfect 10 of a wife because she recognized my heart of worship. When we were in high school, I was up on a stage and there was worship music being played and I was dancing like a fool because I didn't care about anything that was happening around me. I was worshiping Almighty God and this isn't to puff me up, but because genuinely I was worshiping God and she was sitting out in the crowd and her thought was not, that guy is a fool. She thought I was crazy. But the Lord showed her something that day which was a heart of worship genuinely that I had. I don't do it perfectly, but that's the very thing that she was attracted to first and foremost was the genuine worship. Meanwhile, you have Michal, who's sitting up in her high window, and she says, I'm offended by him. How dare he do these things? Charles Spurgeon says this, No doubt there are particularly nice and dainty people who will scorn God's chosen if they live wholly to his praise. They will be called eccentric, old-fashioned, obstinate, absurd, and I don't know what besides, but from the window of their superiority, they look down upon us. Are you ever a critic of the person next to you in worship? Are you ever a critic of someone that God has chosen to express worship genuinely because you can't come out of your high window and see what genuine worship actually looks like? That was Michal. And you might ask, what about people thinking I'm doing something weird? What if that person thinks less of me? That doesn't affect your worship of Almighty God. If you've done it reverently, if you've done it genuinely and joyfully, you can be filled with freedom to not care what the people around you say because this worship is between you and Almighty God. You see, freedom in our worship doesn't care what other people say. We have to be careful that we don't Put freedom first and redefine what God's standards are. But when you have it ordered correctly, then you don't have to care about what others say. The accusation from Michal, David was able to dismiss it. Look at verses 21 and 22. This is what he says to her. When she comes and she says, how dare you strip down to your underwear? She was one of the critics that called it underwear. She says to him, how dare you do that? There were females around. I can't believe you, David. Here's his response. It was before the Lord. The Lord chose me above your father 
and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And so I'm going to celebrate before the Lord, he says. I will make myself even more humble than this. So if you thought this was humble, you just wait, Mishal, because I'm before God and he is the one I'm worshiping, not your words about me, not your criticism about me. You sat up in a window staring at me and you were offended and you missed the very presence of God that I was celebrating. And he's able to dismiss his critics because his heart was blameless. His actions looked funny, but his heart was pure and blameless before Almighty God. And so basically, in my words, he said, bug off. Forget you, critic. I know who I'm accountable to. I know who I serve, and I serve him reverently. I serve him joyfully, and I serve him with all the freedom that I'm allowed to serve him and worship him with. And so for you, are you worried about the person next to you? Because let me challenge you with this. If you're worried about the person next to you, then you missed very step number one, that you are not reverent before God. If your focus is elsewhere, as we sit outside with all of the distractions, if your focus is elsewhere, then you are not being fully reverent before God. And I know that's a big accusation, and I'm not trying to be a critic, but the very reality is when you focus on Almighty God and everything that He is and all of the blessings that He has poured out to us, how can we not only be focused on Him? How can our minds be thinking about that person who hurt me or that person who's wearing that outfit to church or this person who did that to me yesterday? We can't be focused on that because God is bigger and more powerful and more holy and righteous and filled with glory than we could ever imagine. And so we start with reverence and we do it joyfully and we worship with the freedom to worship Almighty God. I want you to look at verse, uh, sorry, Psalm 86 chapter, uh, sorry, Psalm chapter 86 verse 12. It says this, I will give thanks to you O Lord, my God, and the next statement, with all my heart, I will glorify your name forever. I believe that so often we get caught in worshiping God with some of our heart. We get caught worshiping God with some of our thoughts. We get caught worshiping God with some of whatever you want to put in there. When scripture tells us to do it with all of our heart, when David demonstrates to us that he danced with all of his might, that he didn't care what anyone was saying about him. He didn't care about screeching halt to that whole caravan of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because he knew I have to start with reverence. And from that reverence, he danced with joy. And from that reverence and joy, he said, it doesn't matter what I do because with all of who I am, I praise Almighty God. And I believe that the hundreds of people here today would be unstoppable for the Lord if we said, I'm going to do this with all of my heart. I want you to pull out Psalm 150. And I want to read to you the focus of what I believe needs to be our worship as we close. And I didn't prepare this ahead of time, so I'm looking it up with you. Psalm 150 uses the word praise 
13 times in six verses. It says this, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary or outside of this church. Praise him within his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and with the harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbal. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so church, my challenge to you today is if you find yourself with breath this morning, which everyone here does, then what are you to do with that breath? Use it reverently before the Lord. Express it joyfully that you know who God is and what he has done for you. And do it without a care of who's around you because your worship is personal before him. And so together, let's praise him. Father, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. And Lord, I just pray right now that all of us would turn in our hearts of criticism. We would turn in our hearts of distraction. And we would say, just like we were able to read in the book of Psalms, that we would praise you and worship you with all of our heart. Would you destroy all of the categories that we put up? And would you, would you overwhelm us with your presence so that everything about us praises you, almighty God? And may we do so together in this place. Amen. Would you please stand with us this